Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community supports to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards support that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. My name is Wendy Mota. My pronouns are ella, she, her, hers. And we want to welcome you to another episode of The Pivot. We are super excited to have a colleague, an expert, um, join us today. And Arlene, um, I would love it if you can introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. My name is Arlene Vassell. I'm the Vice President of Programs, Prevention, and Social Change at the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence. Um, I've been engaged with this movement um, and our work for over 25 years. Um, But in this space, and based on our upcoming conversation, which I'm so excited about, I also want to say I'm a mother. I'm an auntie. I'm a proud immigrant from Jamaica. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a storyteller. I'm a joy seeker. And I'm a hope dealer. All of which I think contributes to how I show up in the world to do prevention. I uh, more than love that. I respect that. And now I feel like I have to reintroduce myself because that was such (laughs) (laughs) And And just for the record, that's how I introduced myself at other calls. But I just loved everything you said. Um, and I love this space and this energy, and I'm looking forward to, to what we're talking about today. So for today's discussion, for our listeners, um, just a little bit of a background. We want to talk about primary prevention in the context of anti-Blackness. And of course, um, as you heard, um, all of Arlene's expertise, it was just, you know, naturally, or at least for us, it felt natural to invite her. Uh, to contribute on this topic. And just before we start answering those questions, I want to uh, share a little bit about how I grew up and and what came to mind when we were thinking about framing this conversation and um, engaging with you, Arlene. So I was thinking about my grandmother uh, who had 13 kids and she raised all of them in a town called Monte Plata in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And I think about that because I'm first-generation American. My Obviously, my parents were from the Dominican Republic. But I think about that because back then, raising kids looked different, right? Um, mm-hmm. It looked different than what it does now. But I think one factor that contributed to wellness, safety, and prevention was community. And mm-hmm. so I, I remember my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles talking about how the neighbors, right? In Spanish, we say el vecino or la vecina would look after each other's families, right? 
And so if some if a child was hungry, the other neighbor would help feed. Um, they would, you know, just contribute in a, in a more of a collective way to one another's wellness and well-being and safety. So that that happened and, and that reminded me of how my 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 aunties and my uncles grew up. Um, mm-hmm. The community was at the center of their of functioning. Um, and I feel like you you probably most likely agree that there is wisdom that it has to be passed down from one generation to another. And these are some of the things that we carry. So yeah. it, it's, it's, it's prevention, it's community, but it looks differently. And so as we start talking, you and I, um, mm-hmm. about primary prevention, what can you tell us a little bit of what comes up for you? Um, mm-hmm. Having done this in such a long time, for such a long time, um, yeah. what comes up for you? And maybe a little bit about what community uh, plays what role community plays in creating safety for families. Right. Um. Before. Um. Before I re- respond to that, I just want to reflect on your story, right? Because, like, I uh, when I introduced myself, I you know stated that I was a proud immigrant from Jamaica, right? And so that's one of the things that I remember from growing up as yeah. a child in Jamaica. Um, the connections with the grandmas, not only my biological grandmother, but oh. all the grandmothers in the community. Yes. Um, we had a fear, but the fear was a, it was based on honor and respect, right? Um, just knowing that if you misbehave, <laughs> right, in any part of our community, um, the village that we would call, because the village really did raise children, right? Yes. Um, during the era when I was growing up in Jamaica. So like, if I misbehaved down the street, oh, the information was already coming it home. Was coming. Before. <laughs> yes, or it didn't really need to come home, right? My right. parents trusted the other adults in the community to do what was right, right um, based on our collective values, beliefs, right? And mm-hmm. and all of that. So for me, your story resonated with me so much because um, I think that's why now I feel like I'm an auntie, right? Yes. So there, there's a professional side of me Um as it relates to prevention, but there's also this connection, deep connection to community that my prevention work doesn't stop like Uh in the walls or the parameter of my role at NRCDV. It continues in my community, my contributions, uh, my contribution to to the community. So going into when I think about primary prevention, I believe we all have a role to play, right? Beyond official titles. How are we showing up? as a collective um, in our communities. And um, and then when we think about primary prevention, um, the definition, formal definition that's used, of course, is changing the social norms that allows and condone violence, right? And changing our society and institutions, targeting attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, that includes environments, policies, and practices that promote violence and other forms of injustices. I think the key point for me, though, when we talk about um, um, creating thriving and safe communities for families, the number one thing that I think your listeners should um, should do some self-reflection on is, are we talking about all families? Are we Uh, talking about all children? uh Or has biases and systemic oppression contributed to the belief that some people, some communities are more deserving than others. So I will pause with that, right? Yes. And say, 
I think about um, primary prevention in the way that, um, you know, the Center for Disease and Prevention, Disease Prevention and Control, or uh -huh. just the domestic violence movement has looked at prevention. We can state those definitions, all of it, right? Yeah. But for me, the very first thing um, that I would like your listeners to do is to be sure we're talking about all families and we're talking oh. about all children, right? Wow. And using and talking about prevention in plain language, we're just talking about creating safe and thriving communities. We're talking about um, meaningful engagement. We're talking about relationships to heal people uh -huh. and communities. Because oftentimes we don't think about prevention as healing, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I have so much to say. Thank you for that. Um, but I'm not going to say all of it. You know, I just, I, I do have, um, I think we, we can uh, dive right into the second question, but also uh, just to add a tad bit to what you're saying, um, can all families try, thrive, sorry, my accent comes out sometimes, but can all families <laughs> thrive? And I think, you know, sometimes I have a little bit of a reaction to that, particularly in the context of, um, excluded communities right it's like just just giving families the chance sometimes they won't thrive but just giving them the chance mm -hmm. to be I think it's so important and and to find joy and to find rest mm -hmm. and to have the regular challenges that that people have right so I appreciate um and loved everything you said and it, it uh feeds right into my second question how do you feel particularly in the domestic violence field and the way that primary prevention, as we know it currently is, where do you feel it falls short for Black families? Yeah, and and before I go into that, because, you know, just yeah, yeah, yeah. still reflecting on your story, right? Because I do believe that um, storytelling is one key piece of, um, it's an approach that primary prevention historically has not really illuminated as a tool, you know, for social change. So another thing is, as listeners are, like, li as um, individuals who are listening to this podcast, as they are reflecting, I would also suggest to listen to that story that you yeah. shared so well, much. Thank you. You're so, there's so much in that, There's so much in that story that speaks to what needs to happen in community, right? When we're talking about primary prevention. Uh -huh. So I just want to highlight that again, because the story has resonated with me so much. Um, I think where um, the movement has fallen short for Black families, and I would say Black survivors, Black advocates, Black children, uh -huh. um, Black women, Black men, because uh -huh. oftentimes we're talking about prevention and we're talking, oftentimes when we're talking about prevention, we have a mindset of who we're talking about, right? That's so right. when we talk about Black families, I want to be really inclusive that we're talking about children, youth, men, women, and individuals who, you know, um, are gender neutral or they don't they don't identify with a specific gender, but we're talking about black people, <laughs> all black people. Uh -huh. So we so oh, so yeah. as, as a black woman, when I'm talking about prevention, I'm not throwing away particular groups of black people. For example, black men, right? They're uh -huh. a part of the solution. They're a part of um, the conversation. They're also deserving of living safe That's and right. thriving. Um, live. So just want to make that clear. So in this particular movement, I think um, 
white supremacy and anti-blackness is not being talked about. It's not being addressed. I think um, oftentimes it's as if anti-blackness is not a thing. It doesn't exist. It Uh exists elsewhere, Uh but not in this movement, not in Uh this social justice movement, right? Uh So I think that's that's one place where um, the movement is falling short. They're not acknowledging um, those two key issues, white Uh supremacy and anti-Blackness and how Uh they show up. Also, when we talk about access, and like you had said, Everybody may not thrive, right? Uh But what are we putting in place? What are the community conditions, right? So that Black families can thrive. So we're talking about equitable access to resources, housing, connection to family, connection to communities. Um, How are we we defining all Uh families, first of all? Uh (laughs) And then how are we making sure that Black families ha- have equitable access. And I think that's where we're falling short. And we're not including Black families in the conversations, yeah. right? Um, so what's happening is individuals are implementing strategies that were never developed by and that's for right. Black families. Therefore, they are not effective. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? uh-huh. So again, um, as we know in the movement, there's a significant um, underrepresentation of Black women, Black people yeah. in decision-making roles. So again, we're falling short in that sense by the overrepresentation of white individuals uh-huh. in leadership roles. Um, meaning, when I say in leadership roles, individuals who are making the decisions, oftentimes taking the ideas from Black advocates, Black survivors, um, and then not implementing them as they've heard it or as they've um as it has been communicated to them. Yeah. So in, a, in in other words, silencing and dismissing yeah. um, black advocates, black survivors in order to one, you know, address egos, um, deliverables. So it's processes over people. So I could go on and on and on and on and on. But those are some of the um key points that I want to um yeah. highlight is a dismissal of Black leadership, Black voices, and defining solutions, um, creating solutions um, without the voices and leadership of Black survivors and advocates. I I, I love your response. Thank you. So, so true, right? Like, it's straight to the point. And I want to stay on here for just a little bit, a little bit. What would centering Black families, so we're talking about lifting voices, we're talking about the Black collective, so that everything you said, you know, mom, uh, parents, um, across genders, like, we get all that, but I, you know, I hear what you're saying um, in the domestic violence field. Um, Mm -hmm. Not only do we not give credit to sometimes, but like you're saying, we almost usurp uh, the thing that Black folks have been doing and using for a really long time. So I guess the flip mm-hmm. to that for me is what would it look like? What would it look like if we centered Black leaders, Black families, and really like equip them to, to shape their life, right, in terms of prevention um, mm-hmm. in a way that's culturally um, relevant? What, what do you think that looks like? So um, 
One, I would say, listen, I think we've said it, both of us, we've said it, to listen to um, Black survivors, listen to uh -huh. Black advocates, listen to Black communities, um, believe, believe Black families, believe Black survivors. So it's listen and believe, right? So uh -huh. there's, a there's a listening piece that sometimes, you know, um, people will create spaces for listening, right? So listening sessions and all those, uh -huh. those, those um, practices that we yeah. hear about often. But then believe and implement, right? It goes beyond listening, right? And then when you when you believe and you implement, then the voices that were a part of your listening sessions really see their ideas, uh -huh. see their thoughts reflected in what comes out of the listening session. So I think that's one. And then we definitely have to um, connect um, our prevention of approaches um, with larger, broader community systems change um, activities, events, approaches. The only way to do that is be to be connected, right? To be connected to community, connected to the leaders um, in communities. So examples of what I'm talking about would be like wage gap, medical discrimination, uh -huh. voter suppression, re re redlining, biases in education, and it goes on and on and on. That is our work, right? Uh -huh. So um, survivor justice um, is connected to racial justice. You can't yeah. do it independently, right? Um, and then, you know, other things that I think about um, would be addressing health disparities, uh -huh. um, poverty, poverty, housing insecurity. We have to see that as our work, right? And then that has to be led by communities. Yes. So the so the solutions are in communities. So that would be my main thing. The individuals most impacted by whatever it is we're trying to prevent, they have the solutions. They need the resources and they need the space and the opportunity to, to make the changes that they want to see in their community, which uh -huh. is what we talk about when we talk about prevention. We talk about addressing root causes. The individuals most impacted by whatever we're trying to prevent including violence, yeah. um, the solutions are in the communities with the individuals most impacted. They can tell you what the root causes of violence are in their communities. So I love that. I want to repeat um, that. The solutions <laughs> is in community by the people that are affected. You know, it sounds so simple, but I, I think, you know, we miss that so much, right? We miss it. Um, mm -hmm. And then when we miss the 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 mark, we it's like, what are we doing, right? So I I love that the solution is in community. Um, and the, the thing for ahead. me, Wendy, the thing for me, Wendy, is do we miss it or do we choose to ignore it? Okay. Yes. 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 Like, do we do we really miss it or? Yeah. Um, for some individuals, there's a fear yes. of acknowledging that, right? Because if you acknowledge that, then you'll have to give up something. And that something that you may have to give up is power. I was and just going to say this. Like, <laughs> power? Yes, yes, right? So it requires, everything we're talking about is simple, but it requires individuals to give up something in order to gain what we all are working towards, the social transformation, safe um, safe and thriving communities. You have to give up power and go into communities and give the power and resources to the individuals who deserve it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question that's related, um, but we haven't necessarily talked about before, and it's related to funding. Is there mm -hmm. a connection between funding? And by funding, I mean, you know, 
we in the nonprofit social service social work DZ world, there's mm-hmm. um a lot of our programming is you know federal funded, which is restricted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like sometimes in my experience that keeps us in the little hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. I guess my question to you is, what is the connection to culturally responsive prevention work and funding? Mm-hmm. I mean, the obvious is the obvious, but how do you see that connection? And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you raised that, right? Because oftentimes the, the reason for not doing what we're talking about doing is connected to um, funders. You know, funders are saying we can't do this. This is restricted, uh-huh. right? But I've never had a conversation with a funder who does not want to contribute to safe and thriving communities. Yeah. So let me start there, right? Yeah, so yeah, again, yeah. We we're creative with 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 words, uh-huh. <laughs> creative with um, plan program planning, program implementation. Um, most of the funders that I've been engaged with, um, one wants to contribute to save and thriving communities, and also have a requirement about. Um, providing culturally relevant, culturally responsive services, right? So if you're getting funding that requires both, uh-huh. then it requires a level of creativity in how that looks in operationalizing that, That's right? right? So again, for me, um, programs can become creative in how they, 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 they implement what they know communities need. Mm. Now, if there are restrictions, and that's where fundraising, that's where you demonstrate your commitment with other resources and, and make efforts to find the resources to then support what it is that you want to achieve. Most of the time we find resources for everything. So I think one big thing, I'm glad you brought that up, is this scarce, scarcity mentality uh-huh. that prevents us to move forward in a way that we know we need to move forward. So I'm glad you brought up funding. Yeah. And most most funders will support um, creating safe and thriving um, communities. And most funders will support um, organizations um, being culturally responsive. How that looks all depends on how that organization articulates the community's needs to yeah. the funding sources. And yeah. again, if there's restrictions within a particular funding stream, then get creative uh-huh. and find other funding to yeah. support, right? Yeah. And again, all about language, because I've done a lot of trainings recently that people are talking about restrictions. And when we have the conversation about, well, talk a little bit more about what you're restricted from doing. Uh-huh. So some funders may say you can't do prevention. Okay. Uh-huh. How you reword that safe and thriving communities. Right, right. Right, right, right. I love that. And it's like, it's creative, but it's also attached to like desire and willingness to do the work, to stay humble, to be taught, right? And to think Mm -hmm. of it, you know, it's the work from like a different angle, right? So I love, I love everything you said. Um, I could have this conversation for like another hour. However, um, Me too. Not. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I, yeah, I can tell, and I love it. I love, I, I love your expertise and what you're sharing with our listeners today. Uh, my last question to you, Arlene, is really uh, on your take. Like, what would you say to state coalition 
um, local entities and organizations that are really looking to center Black families, that are really looking to do primary prevention in a way that's culturally relevant. Um, what is like one or two takeaways or are there any resources that folks can go to and find more information on this issue? So let's start with one or two takeaways for for um, coalitions and organizations wanting to do Black-centered uh, primary prevention. Oh, man, when you know I can't do one or two. <laughs> you didn't say one or two long or short. So yeah, I'm gonna... that's right. You do what you need to do. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. I'm going to put together a couple, right? Okay. So because I'm thinking, as we're talking, I'm thinking. And I think for me, uh, a couple of things. Um, so we need to recenter um, prevention work, right? And at the center of that prevention work, we need to center the voices and lived experiences of Black survivors, Black advocates, and Black families. That's, that's the first thing, right? Uh -huh. um, and break down the silos between prevention and education, because you actually can't prevent a thing unless you talk more about the thing, right? So what we're talking about is becoming pro-Black. And what is being pro-Black um, as we're doing our prevention work looks like, right? So folks need to think about that. Um, I think another thing is, um, like I say often, is to be the work okay. instead of just doing the work. So how do you, how do you, how do you need to be in order to be pro-black, right? So that's a that's a self-assessment, organizational assessment. It's it's all about assessing readiness, mm -hmm. readiness for the individuals, the organizations, and within your community. Um, what are your positions on other social justice issues or um, what do you know is happening in your communities as it relates to injustices? Right. So yes, we're talking about prevention. Yes, we're talking about Black families, but how is anti-Blackness showing up uh -huh. in your community? And then how does that become your work? Because we can't talk about intimate partner violence prevention and isolation of all the other injustices that may be happening against Black families in your community. So I'll say that. So basically acknowledging and assessing and then um, as you're assessing the, the gaps that you've identified or the issues that you've identified, how do you address them on a consistent basis? How do you build relationships with Black leaders, um, champions in your community, um, individuals that may not have the official title, right, uh -huh. um, but they have the history and they have the information that you need in order to show up in a meaningful way? Yeah. Um, also, this is when we talk about prevention, it's not a it's not only a destination. Right. So the journey um, from present to how you get there is it's heart led work. Right. Yeah. And it's connected to storytelling. So we uh -huh. have to bring that back. And the one thing that people tend to always forget when we talk about black families, which I have to bring into this space is create space and, and acknowledge and celebrate black joy. Black love, yes, black, I love black that. creativity, Black resilience, Black liberation. These are things that we don't talk about because yeah, all we, we talk about is the harm that happened. trauma, for sure. Exactly, the harm and the trauma. And with all of that, when you're talking about prevention, create space for Black families and Black communities to honor their legacy, their ancestors, and you yourself with your prevention programming Black joy, Black love, Black resilience, Black strength, yeah. Black liberation, Black creativity, all of that needs to show up 
in whatever it is you're trying to do. So um, I'll end with that piece because oftentimes we don't think about that. Don't. Individuals don't think about that. I go into a space and we're talking about prevention and I talk about Black joy and people are like puzzled. Like, how is that connected? Well, that's a strength, right? That's strength within our community. Um, that's understanding our culture, understanding what makes us thrive as Black individuals. That's right. And again, you have to listen to Black people in order to know this. So. Yeah. The yes. black woman, I'm sharing this today. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, you talked about resources. We have our preventipv.org website. We have our dvawareness.org um, website. We also have Vonnet, V-A-W-N-E-T.org, um, where individuals can get information. We also have an advancing collective liberation learning community which spun off of um, our national prevention town halls where we've addressed much of what we're talking about here today. And we've had community organizations speak to the issues that we're talking about today. So those are just some resources. I, I love that. I'm, I'm wondering, thank you so much, Arlene. I, I'm actually wondering if there's a way that we can share the links to some of those users. I know for one, I've been using Vonnet for a yes. really long time. So I want to thank you for, for your time today, for your expertise. I know we're at time. I am so excited. I feel like we still need a, a part two because now I'm like, how does capitalism interrupt the way Black people can just be, you know? But so true. Ugh. Everything you said just resonates with me deeply, right? Like, how? what would it look like for Black survivors, Black advocates, Black families, Black communities to have a space just to be, you know? So I I am so honored to have shared this space with you. I love everything you said. And I know that this is gonna stimulate great conversation across our nation. Um, thank you for joining us. And thank I you. hope this is one of many times that we- Thank you, thank, thank you for having me. And thank you for starting our conversation with demonstrating what black families really do need. And that's that multi-generational um, connection. So thank you for thank you for starting us with that amazing story. You brought me home back. To <laughs> thank you, thank you, Arlene. Um, to, till till we see each other again, because I'm not going to say this is the last time. Thank you. It's not. You're welcome. And now for our last words, a poem by the great Maya Angelou titled "Caged Bird." A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful thrill of things unknown but longed for still and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the siding trees, and the fat warmth waiting on a dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful thrill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E. P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.